Well, good morning, church. I would like to ask the men who are going to pass out our handouts to go ahead and do so now. If you want to see a handout and take notes as I preach this morning, just raise your hand. And uh, we've got about a hundred or so of those, and so uh, you can pass those out. And uh, this morning, we're going to go through some, some deep waters. I want to tell you that uh, when I went to seminary, I went through some deep waters. Seminary was a difficult experience for me because it was intellectually challenging, academically challenging, spiritually challenging. Um, and so I went through some difficult waters for, for three and a half years. But when I came out on the other side, I came out better. I came out stronger. I came out more solid in my faith. And I want to tell you that, that this morning, right now, we're about to have a miniature seminary experience. All right. And, and what I want is while it's going to be some deep waters, while there's going to be some tough plowing, if you will, when we come out on the other side, I want us to be better. I want us to be stronger. I want us to be more solid in our faith. And I want us to be able to celebrate more deeper, uh, it, deeply and, and even higher in our worship. And so that that's my goal. And so as they're passing out the, the handouts, we've I've titled the, the very first part resurrection. It's basically a definition of the word resurrection. It is the Greek word anastasis, all right, which literally means to stand on your feet again. That's what it means literally. In, in, basically, when you read it in the Bible or in other forms you, in, in Greek, you see that it means to return from death to life, from death to life. But theologically, if you read about resurrection in the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, what you realize is that the ultimate meaning of resurrection is to reunite the body and the soul for all eternity. Believers to a resurrection of life and unbelievers to a resurrection of judgment. What I want to do right now before we pray for God's blessing is I want to read J.I. Packer's summation of the doctrine of resurrection. And so, if you have your handout, you can look down and I'm going to read these three paragraphs to give us a systematic understanding of the doctrine of resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, which was a divine act involving all three persons of the Godhead, was not just a resuscitation of the ruined physical frame that was taken down from the cross for burial. It was rather a transformation Not a resuscitation, but a transformation of Jesus' humanity that enabled Him to appear, vanish, and move unseen from one location to another. It was the creative renewing of His original body, the body that is now fully glorified and deathless. The Son of God in heaven still lives in and through that body and will do so forever. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul envisages that Christians who are alive on earth at the moment of Christ's return will undergo a similar transformation. In 2 Corinthians 5, he shows himself aware that Christians who die before the second coming will be clothed with their new body, the eternal house in heaven, as a distinct event at or after the time of the old body's return to dust. Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection as a space-time occurrence in history. All four Gospels highlight it, focusing on the empty tomb and resurrection appearances. And Acts insists on it. Paul regarded the resurrection as indisputable proof that the message about Jesus as judge and Savior 
is true. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated His victory over death, vindicated Him as righteous, and indicated His divine identity. It led on to His ascension and enthronement and His present heavenly reign. It guarantees the believer's present forgiveness and justification and is the basis of resurrection life in Christ for the believer here and now. Pray with me. Father, in these moments, in these precious moments, as we stop and we meditate on Jesus' resurrection, on the doctrine of resurrection, and on our own potential resurrection, Father, we pray that You would flood our minds and our hearts with spiritual light. We pray that You would take the magnet of Your love and the magnet of Your power and draw us to Yourself in a special and a powerful way right now in these moments that we will be forever changed. We pray that in the resurrected Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. I realize this morning that we probably have three kinds of people who are here. We have those Christians who are really excited about the resurrection, really thrilled that your Savior was raised from the dead, and that means resurrection life for you. That means forgiveness for you. That means power for you. That means love for you. That means eternity for you. And you, you, you could... You could hardly wait to get here this morning in order to sing and pray and listen and read and fellowship with the saints. And then we have a group of people who are probably a little bit neutral about it. Like, it's not that you dispute that there's a resurrection. It's not that you're like antagonistic about it. But honestly, you just it doesn't really impact you very much. You don't think about it very often. It doesn't shape or form your life. I mean, you're not going to stand and argue with somebody about it, but you're also not going to stand and preach to somebody about it because it just doesn't shape your life that much. You're kind of neutral about it. And then there may be a few in here who are antagonistic, who, who just uh, maybe have a seat of doubt. Maybe you've sat under secular teaching. You, maybe you've, uh, you're more of, a, uh, I don't know, uh, just an, uh, an atheist or an agnostic, and you're just antagonistic about this whole idea, but somebody kind of twisted your arm to be here this morning. But that's generally the kind of three kinds of people who may be in the room today. And this is what I want you to know. If you're excited about the resurrection, if you're thrilled about it, then I just want to give more fuel to your fire. I want to put some more logs on your fire that you can get even more excited. And you can walk with more power. You can walk with more joy. If you're neutral about it, I want to kick that gear into drive. And I want to say... From this day forward, I want you to be ignited. I want you to be put on fire for Jesus Christ because He is, in fact, resurrected from the dead. I want you to see the relevance and the significance of Jesus' resurrection to your life. And then if you're antagonistic, if, if Jesus essentially means nothing to you, I want Him in 45 minutes to mean everything to you. I would love for you to come down today and to give your life to Jesus who died and rose from the dead so that you could be saved from your sins. Now, if you'll look down at your handout on the, I guess that would be page 2, the big idea from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that's the passage we're going to study today. We're going to study 1 Corinthians 15. 
And you can open your Bibles there or you can just walk through the handout because I have put every word of the text in the handout so that it would not be confusing for you. The big idea that the Apostle Paul writes, he, he, he writes a thesis about the, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all people in 1 Corinthians 15, and he essentially says this. He says the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in human history. If true, the resurrection testifies to divine satisfaction of Jesus' death, and it produces for us hope and glory and power and victory. But if it's false, we're all deceived, and humanity is doomed. But praise be to God that Christ is in fact risen from the dead. He is alive and this truth should compel every Christian to live a life of victorious worship and persevering service to our Lord. It beckons us. It begs us. It it, it beckons every lost person to turn from sin and run to Jesus who is the resurrected Lord of glory. Now, Now in his thesis, his argument, he lays out ten resurrection realities. Ten resurrection realities in 58 verses. And and what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to answer the question, church, where is my hope? What am I living for? I'll tell you, even though we might fall into three categories this morning, we might all be really for it or we might be antagonistic or we might be neutral, the reality is we're all living for something. We're all living for something. And... We're all putting our hope in something. Some of us are putting our hope in our job. Some of us are putting our hope in having a great family. Some of us are putting our hope in having wonderful kids that are going to be smart and, 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 and athletic and, and become professionals and make lots of money. Some of us are putting our hope in our health. Some of us are putting our hope in things that are completely changeable in a moment's notice. But we're all putting our hope in something. And what Paul is saying, I want you to fix your hope on that which is fixed, that which is unmovable, and that which is most powerful, the resurrection of Jesus. So let's get started. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. The very first thing we see is the importance of the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of, church tell me what he says, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, the first thing I want to say before you look down on your outline is that the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, the end of the world, is a very important theology. The doctrine of ecclesiology, which is the church and how the church works and functions, is extremely important theology. But there is no theology that is more important than gospelology. It is of most importance. It is of first importance. That's why if you're a Christian, you must know the gospel. You must have the gospel imprinted on your heart because Paul says there's nothing more important than the gospel. And so every one of us needs to understand what the gospel is. And look, in its most basic and fundamental form, it is this. It is that Christ died for our sins. That Christ was physically buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
Paul tells the Corinthians, this is the message that I preach to you. This is the message that you receive from me. This is the message that you stand on. This is the message that saves you. This is the message that, that radically transformed your life. And, and, and it's not that he just merely lived or that he lived and died, but that he lived and died and was buried. The message that saves is that Christ lived, died, was buried, and is risen from the dead on the third day. Now we're going to ask the question, why is the resurrection so important? And is it really that necessary in the big scheme of things? Isn't it enough that Jesus died or that he was buried? And listen, this is the deal. The resurrection of Jesus proves that the death of Christ was a sufficient payment to God to redeem us from the guilt of our sins. And it delivers us to the purity of His righteousness. Now, if you look at your notes, I'll say theology alert. Theology alert right here. The word propitiation is a really big word. All right? Multiple syllables. All right? I want you to know that when Jesus died on the cross, He propitiated God's wrath. That means He satisfied God's righteous wrath against sinners. God is holy, He is pure, He is perfect, and He is just. And God is angry at sin, and He's going to punish it. And listen, you don't want a God who's not angry at sin. You don't want a God who is not just. You don't want a God who just sweeps sins under the rug, because the minute you have somebody whom you love who gets done wrong, somebody whom you love who is killed by a drunk driver, somebody whom you love is, is completely... You want a God who's just, who's going to exercise judgment. He's good to be just, and He's good to be right, but He's going to exercise His wrath and His justice on somebody or something. And it's either on Christ at the cross or its own unbelievers and sinners in hell. And so propitiation is this, is that Christ goes to the cross and He satisfies the righteous, holy wrath of His Father upon the sinful world. He satisfies that wrath so that there's no wrath left for those who would turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. And so how does that fit in with the resurrection? Jamie and I went on our first date on February 13th, 1996. We got engaged on December the 20th, 1996. Both of those were in front of nobody. But on August 9th, 1997, I stood in front of a congregation of 300 people. And she walked down the aisle in her beautiful white dress And I looked at her and she looked at me. And with 300 people in the congregation, what I was saying to everybody here officially and once and for all, this woman satisfies my desires. This woman officially is my woman. I I love her and she satisfies me. It was public, it was official, and it was permanent. Now make this connection with me. When Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, God is saying that Jesus Christ has satisfied me. He has satisfied my wrath. He has satisfied my anger and my justice. And His whole life has satisfied my demand for holiness and for purity. This is my public declaration. This is my official declaration. I'm risen from the dead. I'm satisfied. All right, and so the importance of the resurrection is that apart from the resurrection, then we would not have forgiveness and we would not have life. The resurrection confirms the Father's satisfaction, you'll see in your notes. The second reality is the proof of the resurrection. 
the proof. Verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and at, at one time. Listen to that, 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says. Though some have fallen asleep, that is, some have died. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' half-brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now look down at the text, because we want to ask the question, okay, wait a minute, Paul. Now who all did Jesus appear to? He appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the twelve, He appeared to more than 500 believers. He appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles. And Paul would say, he appeared to me. Now, in a Jewish court, the presence of two or three witnesses was mandatory to prove the veracity of an event, the truthfulness of an event. And by appealing to over 500 people at one time, what is Jesus doing? He's providing overwhelming proof that he is alive. I grew up wondering whether the the resurrection of Jesus was real. I I used to ask the question, is that really true? Or did someone write that in a scroll or on a parchment sometime, and then that story just kind of got perpetuated generation after generation, and now after about 1,975 years, I'm hearing about it. Something that bothers me is that when I watch the History Channel, or A&E, I watch a lot of documentaries. It might be Rome, the engineering of an empire. Rome, the power and glory. Alexander the Great. And all of these scholars, these these historians, they they sit somewhere in some ancient building. If you can know, they always have pillars in the background, you know, and they're sitting, they've got their tie on and their glasses and kind of their messed up hair, you know, just like, you know, that, that typical picture of the scholar. And they start talking about Alexander the Great and the decisions that he made and the things that he did. And you start listening and you're like, you know, only one or two people could possibly have known that about Alexander the Great. Like, like maybe one or two people knew that about him. Or when they hear about, you know, one of the Caesars and some decision he made or something that he did inside his palace that maybe one or two people saw. But what do these scholars do? They get on television and they assert it as absolute fact. They say that it's history. They write books about it. They make money off of it. And yet, when you hear about Jesus Christ and He reveals Himself to 500 people and to His disciples and it changes their lives forever and they go out and all die violent deaths defending the reality of the resurrection, these same scholars will say, well, it's not really verified. That's the heart of unbelief. Because what you're saying is, is I'm just unwilling to submit my will and my heart and my life to somebody else other than me. And you can cloak it in academia. You can cloak it in scholarly um, work. You can cloak it in anything you want to. But what is it? At the root and heart of it, it is the heart of unbelief and unwilling to worship a resurrected king. The resurrection is a verifiable fact, the proof of the resurrection. Number three, the fruit of the resurrection. Verses 9 to 11. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any one of them. 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. We see the fruit of the resurrection right here. This is the essence of Paul's testimony. I've written it for you. This is essentially what he's saying. Paul is saying, I hated Jesus. I hated his church. I persecuted his people. And then one day I was on my way to imprison more Christians. And the resurrected Lord of glory stopped me in my tracks, revealed himself to me, imposed his grace on me. And I was as self-righteous as a person can be. I was as hostile toward the Christian religion as a person can be. I was as skeptical as a person could be. But then I saw Jesus risen from the dead and my life changed on a dime. How did the resurrection change Paul? He repented of his sins. He repented of his self-righteousness. He repented of all of his religion that was cloaked in external exercises, and yet he had a cold, dead heart. Why? Because Paul was a worshiper of himself rather than a worshiper of God. Paul was concerned about promoting himself rather than promoting the glory of God. Paul was all about himself. And I will tell you something. Paul was just like you and I are apart from grace, apart from resurrection. I was confessing my sin this morning and I was saying, God, apart from your grace coming into my life through the power of the resurrection, Ryan Limbaugh sits on the throne of his life and he's wanting everybody around him to give him attention, to give him affection, to give him glory, to give him the props that he is due. But, but now that your grace has invaded my life, I no longer want glory, I no longer need glory, because I see the glorious Savior, King Jesus, who is resurrected from the dead. Praise your name. And so, and so what we have, the fruit of the resurrection, is that Paul, Paul, who's writing this letter, if you look down at your notes, he travels the entire Roman Empire. He enters Jewish synagogues. Those who were formerly his friends who now are enemies toward him. He enters Gentile homes, city marketplaces, declaring the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Thousands of people were saved. Hundreds of churches are planted. Thirteen books of the Bible are written. And the world has never been the same. That's the fruit of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection accomplishes the great reversal. It turns antagonists to God into ambassadors for God. It turns enemies of God into allies toward God. It turns self-righteous people into self-denouncing people. It turns haughty people into humble people. That's what it did in the life of the Apostle Paul. And I will tell you, that's what it should do to every person who professes faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Number four, the denial of the resurrection. Verses 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You guys remember that person a number of years ago who said, listen, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm right about the resurrection and you're wrong, then you've got hell to pay. 
if I'm wrong about the resurrection and you're right that there is none, then I've lived a great life and I've lost nothing. And I would say to you, that was a foolish statement. Because church, I want to tell you, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we are the most pitiful people on the face of the earth. We, we are deceived, we are lied to, and we are giving our life to something that is completely worthless. That's exactly what Paul's about to say. Look, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He's raised Christ whom He didn't raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Keep your eyes on your notes. Because you see some some people in Corinth were buying into this philosophy that the soul is immortal. The body is mortal. The soul is immortal. The body is mortal. And, And the soul lives forever, but the body wastes away. It ceases to exist and has no relevance for eternity. But Paul says, if that's true... Then, then Jesus' body is still in the grave. And His redemptive work on our behalf is fruitless. And my preaching is nothing but empty words. I'm a charlatan, a fake, and a fraud. And anyone who believes my message is a fool. If you say there's no resurrection, if, if you say, no, I just don't believe in that. I believe that there was this man, Jesus. I believe that He said wonderful things. I believe that He was compassionate, that He was loving, and He was gracious. And He's a, he's a wonderful model that we should take for our own lives and for our family's lives so that we could live better lives. But that's really about it. I want to tell you, Paul would say, my preaching's empty. Your faith is worthless. I've lied about God. You're in your sins. The dead in Christ have perished forever. And we are the most pitiful people in the world. No resurrection means absolutely no hope. The denial of the resurrection. All right, number five. The power of the resurrection. Now let's stay locked in here for the next couple of realities. It's going to be some, some, some deep plowing. So stay locked in mentally and spiritually. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who fall asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all what? Die. So also in Christ shall all be made what? Alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. Now I want to make the first confession here. There is a lot of subjectiveness going on right there in that passage. All right? But let's keep our eyes down on the main point. The main point that he's making is this point of first fruits. Paul assumes that the Corinthians have an idea 
of the Levitical teaching and instruction of first fruits, in which farmers who worshiped the Lord, who worshiped Yahweh, would plant and then they would work the land. And then all of a sudden, when the very first fruits that come out for harvest would start to come, they would pick the fruits, they would pick the vegetables, and they would walk down the tabernacle, and they would offer up their worship to God by offering these fruits and vegetables that were the very first to come out of the ground as an offering, as to say, these are my first fruits, we're waiting for the harvest to come in, but God, you're over the harvest, you are over this, and so here we are as a first fruit, as a token, as a symbol of what is about to come. Y'all follow that line of thinking? Because what he's saying here is that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he's like those first fruits. He's like that first offering that has been plucked out of the ground and offered up to, to worship unto God, but it's a representation of what is about to come. And so that 2,000 years later, Adam can participate and Jennifer can participate and Leslie can participate and David can. Because Jesus is the first fruit, you guys are going to be the ultimate harvest that comes in. That's the power of the resurrection. And so how powerful is the resurrection? It guarantees our life. And it also guarantees that He will destroy all darkness, the power of death, the power of Satan to keep us down in the grave forever. Number six, we see the necessity of the resurrection. It's not a debatable thing. It's not something that's optional. It's necessary. Verse 29 and following. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I I, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus of our Lord, I die every day. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead aren't raised? I'll tell you what. Let's just eat. Drink, for tomorrow we die. No, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now Paul's addressing a lot of a little different issues that we're not all specifically uh, aware of that are going on in Corinth. The key statement that we want to focus in on is what I underlined and what I bolded. I die every day, Paul says. He says, my life is a daily death to self, a daily death to sin, a daily death to flesh, a daily death to the inordinate pleasures for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Paul would say, I endure hunger for the sake of the gospel. I endure persecution for the sake of the gospel. I endure shipwreck for the sake of the gospel. I endure being beaten with rods three times for the sake of the gospel. I endure the mocking of my former friends for the sake of the gospel. I endure going without for the sake of the gospel. I endure imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. And I'll ultimately endure a violent death for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because I know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and I I will be too because I put my faith in Him. The resurrection justifies a life of worship and service. Let's just pause for a moment. If you believe 
in the resurrection of the dead. If you believe that Jesus is risen, how does that shape your life every day? I, uh, I once asked three different people in the span of two hours, do you believe in the resurrection? All three people immediately said, yes. I then followed up with a question that said, so how does that impact your life every day? Long pause. Nothing? Uh, everything? Mm, I don't know. I'm not sure. Church, if the resurrection of Jesus is not impacting your life on some type of cognitive level that reaches down into your heart that motivates why you do what you do every day, I want to tell you, there's something wrong spiritually. And you need to investigate it right now so that you can live the same kind of life that Paul did with complete and utter confidence in Jesus Christ and rejecting and denying everything that you once formally lived for, everything that you once formally wanted to worship and idolize, and now run to Him and have your whole life shaped by His work on your behalf. The necessity of the resurrection. Let's look at the glory of the resurrection. This is our longest passage right here. Let's just park in and I'll try to read it fairly methodically so that we can understand it. The glory of the resurrection. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, here it is, here it is, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Wow. Now look down at the picture. This is the picture he's painting. He's saying when you plant a seed into the fertile soil that has sufficient moisture and warm temperature, what happens? Germination. And the germination process causes the seed to disintegrate. 
The dying seed does one thing, though. It gives birth to new life in the form of a developing shoot, a developing plant, a developing stem. And, and out of that comes fruit. Out of that comes uh, lusciousness. Out of that comes life. That's what he's saying. He said, at death, the human body descends into the grave. It disintegrates and in a matter of time disappears. But God, through the power of the resurrection of Christ, reassembles the dust particles and the molecules of the human body to call it forth in glorified form and newness of life. You see, burial, look down at the text. Look, burial is a figurative sowing in anticipation of the future harvest at the time of the resurrection. And so God's promise stands that we will receive glorified bodies reunited with our glorified souls. And so I've put in your notes, let's just call it like it is. Death is disturbing. It's traumatic. It's way more than bothersome. It, it, it creates a hollow feeling in your, in your heart and in your mind. I, I, I remember I once was studying on, on a Sunday morning around 5.30 a.m. at McDonald's in Oxford. And I'm just preparing my sermon, just meditating. And a couple of men walk into McDonald's and they go over and speak to one of the ladies who's working at the table. And they begin to talk to her. And she gets this troubled look on her face. And then they say a few more things to her and she starts saying, No! 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 She begins to scream so loud she fell out in the floor and begins to weep and wail like something I have never seen or never heard in my life. They pick her up and carry her out of McDonald's and put her in a car and drive off. What had happened? Her dad had just died. Death is disturbing. It's traumatic. And it's unnatural. That's why when you stand over a coffin and you see somebody that you've loved and you look down, everything about you wants to say, oh, that person looks so good and, and oh, that's so sweet or oh, I love what they're wearing or oh, I love that. I, that was just a great... But in reality, we know that in our heart of hearts, what I'm looking at is something that is terribly wrong with humanity. And what Paul is teaching us right here in this lesson is that even though sin has produced death, God reverses the impact of death by raising His Son from the dead and guaranteeing you that you will live forever if you put your trust in Him. And so now, I can tell you this. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be in terror of getting a disease and dying early. Why? Because I know I'm going to live forever and my body's going to be resurrected and be joined with my spirit and I'll be perfect forever and ever. Do you have that same hope? If you look down at, the, at my notes, praise be to Jesus that the resurrection exchanges death for life, darkness for light, dishonor for honor. 
guilt for glory. That's the glory of the resurrection. Number eight, we see the victory of the resurrection. We're in the home stretch. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you right now, do what you need to do by the power of the Holy Spirit to focus in, to listen, to have your heart shaped by these remaining texts because it can make all the difference in your life. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at your outline. Follow what Paul is saying. What's the sting of death? Somebody tell me. Sin. Sin is the sting of death. Now, what's then the power of sin? The law. You see, sin, sin is the reason that death is, exists in the first place. Right? Adam and Eve rebelled against God's goodness. They said, we don't care about your love. We don't care that you're infinitely wise. We want to go our own way. And when they went their own way, they ushered into death, right? I'm right. saying they ushered death. Sin is the sting of death. Now, knowledge of sin comes through what? The law. And so the law has a causative function. The law brings to light sin committed against God. In other words, I'm out living my life, I'm doing my thing, and, and, and all of a sudden, um, I feel guilty about something that I'm doing. I'll never forget when, I was, uh, when I, was, I was playing with a friend of mine when I was in college, and he had a, a young son, and we were playing a game. And I, I, I used some language that alarmed the young son. And he looked up at his dad, and he said, Dad, we don't use that word. And I, I got flushed. And, and the reason that they didn't use that word is because of the Scripture talking about that you should, use un, uh, you should never use unedifying speech, but only speech that builds up. And you know what happened to me that day? I became aware of my sin because the law began to convict me of that reality. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that. Now look back down at your notes. He says the law gives sin its power. Sin without the law is dead. The law convicts. It condemns the sinner to death. And so the law is an instrument of death because the sinner is unable to fulfill its demands. And so, John Calvin has said, death has no other weapon except sin with which to wound us. Since death comes from the wrath of God, but He is angry with our sins. Do away with sin then and death will not be able to harm us anymore. Look at that. Do away with sin. Do away with sin and death will not be able to harm us anymore. You see, it's the law of God that gives that sting its deadly power. And so we've got to ask the question, do we just not have any hope? 
I mean, are we, are we just doomed? No, we're not doomed. We have hope. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. You see, the law hangs over you and I. Let's just think of it in, in terms of the Ten Commandments. you got these big two stone tablets. And they, they hang over us and walk over us everywhere that we go in our life. And it says, you shall keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. You shall honor the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not kill. You shall not covet. You shall not be jealous. You shall not do any of these things. And and Jesus comes uh, behind that and says, listen, if, if you've ever been angry with somebody in your heart, then you've committed murder. If you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, then you've committed adultery. And, 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 and it just hangs over us. And then all of a sudden, what happens when it's time for us to die? That law falls right down on top of our head and it it crushes us. It kills us. And Paul is saying it doesn't have to because Jesus had that law hanging over him and he never once violated that law. He never once transgressed that law. He fulfilled every jot and every tittle of every command that God has given. And now if you believe in Him, His record can be your record. His righteousness can be your righteousness. So, we have hope. The resurrection exchanges defeat for victory. All right, number nine, the response to the resurrection. It's interesting. Paul has gone on for 57 verses. 57 verses, and he hasn't given one instruction. He hasn't given one command. He hasn't said, no, go and do this. Until finally, in the very last verse, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is the response he wants us to make, church. He says, Settle yourself, fix your place in the gospel, and don't waver in it. He says, be immovable. That is, be unmovable. I was cutting grass one time and uh, came, came across a rock in the ground. And I said to myself, I, I'm going to run over that rock and I'm going to tear up the blade. And I'm not going to be able to cut. So I'm going I'm to cut off the, the lawnmower and I'm going to go over and I'm going I'm to pull this rock out of the ground. And it, was, it didn't look very big. And so I went down to kind of pry it out with my hands. All right, and, and so I realized I, I put my fingernails in the dirt and I couldn't budge it at all. And I'm like, well, to serve the people who are going to cut the grass here um, continually, then I, I better just get it out. And so I went and got a shovel and I began to, to dig into the ground. And what I realized is that the rock got wider and deeper the more I dug with my shovel. I started getting tired. I bent down. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get it out. I could not budge it. I stood up and I said, I'm just going to cut around it. (laughs) Just been cutting around it. The Apostle Paul would say to every believer, be that rock. Be unmovable. Be impenetrable. Be absolutely adamant in your life for Jesus. Don't go anywhere because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and He is your hope. It is a fact. Put your rest in Him. And no matter what comes your way, 
whether it's disease or illness, whether it's a lost job, whether it's a difficult family situation, whether it's a tough marriage, whether it's a loss of money, whether it's a loss of a parent, be immovable because you've got one thing for sure, the hope of the resurrection. That's what he's saying here. That's our response. Always abound in the work of the Lord. That is, be in excess. Exceed in number and measure to the superabounding of faithfulness to Jesus. And then finally, number 10, we see the confidence of the resurrection. Knowing, he says. Knowing. Not guessing. Not approximating. Not hoping. Not not thinking. Not crossing your fingers. No. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Every dollar you give to the Lord has value. Every nursery you serve in has value. Every gospel opportunity that you take has value. Every family worship that you lead in your home has value. Every scripture that you study has value. Every minute, every second you spend in prayer has value. Every person you call or write or hug in the name of the Lord has value. Every gift you give to a person in need has value. Every song you sing to the resurrected Lord of glory has value and Adam every beat that you make on this drum right here has value Chris every time you sit down with your family and lead them in worship it has value it is not in vain Jennifer every prayer that you pray is not in vain Mary every lesson that you teach is not in vain Ronald Haynes every family that you love is not in vain Kim, every child you teach is not in vain. Leah, every patient you serve is not in vain. Leela, every song you lead for these kids is not in vain. Robbie, every coworker that you love and serve is not in vain. I can tell you why it's not in vain. Because your Savior is not in the grave. He is alive. So you be affirmed today in your service for the Lord. And you also be exhorted to worship and serve and love and pour your life out. Because Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead.